Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month. This year, our Mentor of the Month presentations will focus on practice fundamentals. Fundamentals are the most essential part of a business. They serve as the groundwork for success and need to be reviewed and re-reviewed no matter where you are in the timeline of your career. Coach Vince Lombardi once said that football is two things. It's blocking and tackling. I don't care about formations or new offenses or tricks on defense. You block and you tackle better than the team you're playing, you win. This year's Mentor of the Month interviews will review business fundamentals. They are the blocking and tackling of business success. Please enjoy now this Mentor of the Month presentation. Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson, and I'm excited to introduce and have with us today Dan Wicker from Cane Waters, who uh, I'm sure you're very, very familiar with. Dan is a CPA and also a personal financial specialist and the managing partner of Cane Waters. Cane Waters specializes in doing financial planning uh, on the personal side as well as the practice side for dentists all over the country. And uh, many of our Crown Council members uh, work with Cane Waters and they continue to be a great resource uh, for all of us. And so I'm excited to have Dan with us today. I've given him a specific assignment today, which is to share with us some of the biggest mistakes that he sees the dentists make in terms of putting together their own personal financial plan and the biggest things that we can all do to increase the odds of having a, a more successful financial outcome uh, today and down the road. So Dan, thanks for joining us as our Mentor of the Month guest this month, and we're looking forward to your, uh, your wisdom that you're going to share with us today. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you guys uh, asking for uh, Kane Waters to, to present to the Crown Council Member of the Month, and I'm excited to hopefully give some great information so that people can use this to put some action into their own financial plan. You know, unfortunately, financial planning is Sometimes it's very tangible and sometimes it's very intangible. The intangible side is what makes most of us want to put off our financial planning for a long time and then realize that we might be behind the eight ball at some point in time in our life. Because what we're really doing is we're, we're setting aside something that we could do tangible today that will allow us to achieve wealth and use it at some time, some certain point in the future. And there's always something that can get in the way of financial planning today that affects your ability to save for the future. And what's really important about financial planning is finding some type of balance between those two, where you can enjoy what you're doing today, but also um, not forego um, the importance of, of tomorrow. And so what I wanna go over with us today is some, is some key topics that will help each of us remember and give you some education into the insight of what to look for long-term in your financial planning. At Kane Waters, we find that once someone is properly educated, they actually make better decisions. What a novel decision, right? The more I know about something, the more that I'll follow it and understand it. You usually don't do it out of ignorance, for sure. <laughs> That's correct. And so what ends up happening is, is people simply aren't educated in the art of financial planning. Most of us are taught how to handle money from our parents 
most of us would probably look back and say that that may not be exactly 100% the way I want to handle money. So with these key topics and, and being educated on these key topics that I'm going to present today, um, you can do a lot in helping you reach um, economic freedom. So the first thing that I want to cover is an idea um, that the idea of how money compounds. Compound interest is interesting. Albert Einstein once said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it and he who doesn't and he who doesn't pays it. And so my example of that is taking Fenway Park. And let's, let's take an example of how Fenway Park would fill up with water. So let's assume that we have a pitcher down on the pitcher's mound and we're gonna chain someone to the very top seat at Fenway Park. And the person on the pitching mound has a magic eyedropper and this magic eyedropper is gonna drop a drop of water every minute and it's gonna be the size of a dime. And on the next minute, the, um, the drop is going to be twice the size as the previous drop. So the second drop is two dimes. On the third minute, it's four dimes. On the fourth minute, it's eight dimes. Then 16, then 32, then 64. I think everyone understands the concept. So if you're thinking about that, let me give you just a, give you 10 seconds to think about how long in your mind, come up with how long in your mind you would think you would have until um, the Fenway Park would be completely full with water. The answer is actually 49 minutes. No way. So when we go and talk about it, sometimes people say, oh, it's 30 minutes. But in most cases, they're, they're further on past the 49 minutes. But the key to this component is, at what time would you think that Fenway, you would be nervous about Fenway Park filling up with, filling up with water? And the answer is probably around 44 minutes. At 44 minutes, Fenway Park still only has five feet of water in it. So in the last five minutes is where all of the action takes place. That's where you get 10 feet for the next drop, then 20 feet, then 40 feet, then 80 feet, then 160 feet. And so it fills up very quickly in those last five minutes. And that's a real analogy that I wanna lead into in how money grows, because understanding this key concept allows you to make the right decisions earlier in your life rather than um, at a later point in your life. So let's take a look at, let's take a look at this chart at CWA, we put a name behind this and we call it one to one, two to one, three to one. And it's simply an easy way to chart out how money grows. The concept is if I had a financial plan and I only had to save $1 a year and I could somehow earn a 10% return on that $1. So I save my dollar and in the first year I earn 10%. So at the end of the year, I have a dollar and 10 cents. My earnings are 10 cents and the amount that I saved is a dollar. So my earnings to my dollar is 0.1 to one. The next year I add another dollar, so now I have $2.10. If I earn my 10% on that, I would earn 21 cents on my $2.10. So I'd earn 21 cents to the dollar that I saved. So I'm at 0.21 to one. So the concept is pretty easy to understand. Eventually I come to the point where I have $10 in my pile and I earn 10% on my $10 and I earn a dollar. So now I've earned $1 to the, to the dollar that I've saved. 
thereby I've reached what I've called one-to-one. -one. My earnings are equal to the savings that I completed that year. So what I wanna do is take that concept and show you how it really affects how your money grows. So on this chart, there's a, the first line to go over is what's called a, um, is the purple line there, where it shows, where it shows a 0% return over a 30 year period. We saved $60,000. And at the end of that time period, you have approximately $1.8 million. No earnings, 0% return. The next line is the red line. And that assumes that I earn an 8% return. And you can see that after approximately nine years, I'm at one to one, the point in time where I had enough saved that I earned $60,000 equal to the 60,000 that I saved. Got it. What you'll notice is then by year 14, I reached two to one and by year 18, I reached three to one, meaning that at two to one, my savings, my earnings, excuse me, my earnings is twice what I saved. So in that case, it'd be 120,000. Three to one is the point in time where my earnings would be three times what I saved or 180,000 to my 60,000 in savings. If you notice, each point on the graph takes less and less time to get to after you pass one to one, simply because the earnings is now starting to become more critical in how you accumulate wealth. Up to three to one, the most important part of accumulating is actually your savings and not your earnings. While it is important to have good earnings, it is actually less important to have the earnings than it is the savings or the, the base foundation for something to grow. If you look at the next line, which is the light blue line, this line assumes that at three to one, we stop saving the $60,000. We've reached three to one, we stop saving the 60,000, and you can see at the end of the chart there, we're at about 6.1 million to about 7.3 million, 7.2 million. So what you can tell from this chart is the fact that in those last 18 years, in those last 12 years from year 18 to year 30, we saved $60,000 a year, which is $720,000 worth of savings. And I only have 1.1 to 1.2 million more to show for it. Why is that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is it didn't matter that you added that much after you crossed three to one, because it's mostly gonna be what you add to the pile. You've already got a significant amount accumulated so that the earnings are already growing on that significant amount. The next line is the orange line. And this one's important to kind of note. For those of us that wait to get started and don't start until I get to year eight. So I get no savings from year one through year eight. And beginning in year nine, I begin to start saving my $60,000 a year. So I save the 60,000 from year nine all the way through year 30. And I end up with about $3.7 million. And all I did was not add the $60,000 for the first eight years or 480,000. And the difference in the ending value of my money is very, very significant, either up to, up to 6.1 or 7.3 million. And the last one to point out the importance of return or not the importance of return is to look at the two green lines. The solid green line at the bottom shows a 3% return up to one to one. So I save my $60,000 and I get a 3% return. And you can see at one to one, I am just a little bit ahead of my purple line. And I'm really not that far behind the blue line that had achieved an 8% return. Now I continue saving my $60,000 and I get my 8% return. 
and I end up with about six and a half million as compared to the 7.2, 7.3 million. So you can see that primarily what's important up to one to one is almost entirely your savings and not the investment return. So if you, if you think about your action item for this is understand this concept. Don't get so hung up on how you're investing your money and what type of return that you're getting, but protect your principal and achieve the key component, which is getting yourself to one to one, two to one, three to one by saving and creating that critical foundation base that will eventually be able to earn uh, money once you uh, are investing it appropriately for the long term. This right here, Dan, this ought to be a discussion that everybody ought to have with their kids at age five. Well, maybe that's too early, but right? The earlier you start, well, the better you're going to be, right? It's definitely something to have, a conversation to have with your children when you start. Um, they open up their first checkbook and start spending money and getting jobs. Yeah. It's a concept that we teach to every new client that comes through Kane Waters. It's a concept that we rehash with our existing clients because it's the backbone philosophy of how we make recommendations to our clients. And it's a very important concept. Most people don't understand this concept and say, oh, I'll start later and I'll come back. Well, if I start later and come back, then you're the orange line in this graph. Right. You're $3 million behind someone that understood this concept. Get so that's it. concept number one for us. The second, the, the second major concept is understanding what a basis of where your money goes. And unfortunately, as, as, as dentists or in the dental profession, we're not necessarily taught all the ins and out about um, accounting and how to save money and how our taxes work. But as a dentist or an educated person, you can certainly understand the importance of knowing where that goes. And so at Cane Waters, one of the things that we build with our clients is what we call our 50-30-20 model. Of course, the three numbers add up to 100. And what we're doing here is we're breaking down your pre-tax income. If you're meeting these goals in a global fashion, you're probably on your way to uh, at least meeting your goals or not getting close to your goals for your financial plan. If you're not meeting these three percentages, then you're probably not on your way to meeting that. So the first thing that we do when, when we're looking at this is we try to determine what your, what your pre-tax income is, what 100% of the money that you have out of your practice or net rental out of, your, out of a building, determine what that number is. We will then look at what you did in the previous year before you saw Kane Waters. We'll add up all the taxes that you paid. Your taxes make up your federal taxes, your state taxes, and your Social Security and Medicare taxes. And since you're self-employed, congratulations, you get to pay both the employer and the employee side of the Social Security. Right. So we add all those up and we'll divide that by your pre-tax income to determine what percentage you're paying in taxes. We want that to be very close or as close as possible to 30% of your total pre-tax income. Now, this is for a standard. If you're making um, much higher than a million dollars a year in pre-tax income, then your taxes are probably gonna be higher than 30% because most of your income is gonna get taxed at the higher income tax brackets. Next, we'll look at your savings. We'll look at how much you added to your 401k. We'll look at what you added to IRAs. We'll look at personal savings. And we'll also look at if you are making extra principal payments on your debt above your, your uh, regularly scheduled monthly payments. We will list all of that as your savings. If that is not 20% of your pre-tax income, you're probably 
under, you're probably undersaving or you're spending too much money. The last is your, is your living expenses. Now, while most doctors don't track their living expenses, we can back into this number by looking at the other two numbers and seeing that, well, if we know what the other two numbers are, because they're pretty easy to determine, we can determine what you're living off of. In the case of living expenses, what most doctors look at is they, they fully understand what they spend on a, on a monthly basis and all the things they have to write checks for, but it's the discretionary items, travel, entertainment, meals, dining out, kids, all of those things are the things that we don't realize what we spend that creates a living expenses above the 50% that's necessary to be able to get our taxes down to 30% and our savings up to 20%. So this is a very good exercise for you to walk through. And I'm gonna show you some key components next about how you can walk through that and calculate this on your own. So the first part of that is to understand that you're a CFO. Unfortunately, you know, we don't all love accounting. We don't all love the number side of, of our practice. Okay. But in about 15 minutes each month, if you have someone prepare a financial statement for you and put it in a format like the one on the screen in front of you, you can certainly understand exactly where your income is. So in a dental practice, it's very important to have a financial statement that lays out what level of income you're making. Number one, to understand your overhead. Number two, to understand what income do I have to budget with? Because if we don't know this number, we won't know how to begin to budget for you. So in this example, we have collections, then we have our direct expenses. I've got these listed out as standard uh, percentages that we like to see in a dental practice for general dentistry practice. Then we have our fixed expenses and we have our net practice income. The net practice income is before debt service, equipment purchases, and any of your personal expenses. If we can see that you're netting between 38 and 42%, then we know um, exactly where you're, what level of overhead you're looking at. We can see that you're in the general average of where we see general dentistry practices. In most cases, when I see a new client, what we end up seeing is collections, all the expenses, including the doctor's salary, all listed in, in one sheet, not broken out with a net income. And so in order to determine what your profitability is for the month, you have to go in, add up and add back all of the things that are your, your expenses, depreciation, interest expense, all the things that, don't, that we don't count in determining overhead to look at that each month. And if you have to spend extra time in that, that's when you get frustrated and now all of a sudden you don't understand where your income is. Well, if your financial statement is laid out under this format, you can look at this at the end of each month, study it, know exactly if any overhead is out of place, and know exactly what you're netting on both a monthly and an annual basis, you know exactly where your income stands. A lot of times we think that we make less than we actually are, or sometimes we're making more than we actually have, or we don't understand all of the personal expenses that we're running through the practice. This allows us to put it in a format to say, okay, now we understand exactly where 100% of our pre-tax income is, and now we can decide where our taxes need to be and where our savings need to be and take that number and decide where it's gonna go on a monthly basis. And that's one of the first key components of understanding your financial statements. So don't think that your CPA is just doing these for, for his or her benefit to pay your taxes, although that helps us. This is a very good tool for you for managing your business. So Dan, what would you say if, uh, if someone is not looking at this on a monthly basis, uh, what would you say to them? Well, number one is those are typically the, 
the practices where the overhead is high and they don't know how to correct something. It's typically the practices that um, are tight on cash flow and wondering uh, how they're going to make sure they meet payroll and all of those types of expenses. And lastly, it's it's the person that just kind of operates by the seat of their pants yep. and doesn't understand what's happening in their practice on a monthly basis. I not only like to refer to this, but I also like to have a practice monitor filled out. I know Tops does a practice monitor for clients on a monthly basis. I like the, the doctors to, to sit down in the practice, look at the practice monitor, which determines all of the items that you're doing to produce. And then the financial statements talks about, okay, now that I've collected my production, where is it going? And those two items um, are all you need to look at every single month and in 15 minutes determine exactly where all the pluses and minuses are in your practice. Got it. All right, so I, if I could just interject there, Dan, as far as a habit goes, uh, if, if someone is not in the habit of looking at this on a regular monthly basis and really understanding it, that is uh, top shelf, gotta do it every month. I can't echo that enough. Uh, it, is, it is so important. And it's just, it's creating a habit of being financially secure in your practice. Yeah. Um, and that creates so much more stability and so much more of a way to, yes, I can say yes to this marketing because I know exactly what I make. I can say yes to this consultant or I can say yes to this continuing education course. When cash flow is tight, we say no to all of those things that actually help build our practices. So that's, that's topic number one. That is knowing 100% of your income. Next, we have to look at where our money is being spent. And so what we have to look at is the differences between how men and women spend money. And although none of us like to budget, when clients sit down in our office, typically one person handles the monthly stuff in the office or in, at home and, uh, and will blame the other spouse on overspending. But in reality, the way we spend money is twofold. Women will spend money like this. Our mission is to go to Gap and buy a pair of pants. And if you follow the red line, you can see that the female goes into the mall, travels around to every store in the mall, and then goes past Gap so that they can go to all the schools, stores, then goes back to Gap, spends three and a half hours and $876. Dan, I don't know that you made any big friends with the women just now, but <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so the guy, we go in in six minutes, get a pair of pants, spend $33 and exit the mall. And then as the guy, we blame the wife on the monthly spending in the practice. However, typically it's sometimes the guy that messes up the monthly spending because the guy or the men are typically the ones that spend like this, the big one ticket items. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the Super Bowl this year. I bought a new car or I just redid the, uh, uh, the, the game room with a new TV and sound system. So when you think about spending money, all of us have our vices of how we spend money. There's always something, whether it's cars, whether it's clothes, whether there's always gonna be something. The key is knowing how much you're spending and not necessarily in all of the different areas, but knowing in some form or fashion where it's going because we're not overpaying our property taxes and our mortgage payment <laughs> and our utilities, but we're over, where we overspend and say, I can't save any more money is that we're spending too much on clothes or vacations or something else as compared to our income. 
So I show this slide kind of as, as a joke, but it's, it's, the, it's important for, for both the husband and the wife to, and both spouses to really understand where the, the money is going and create a habit of what you're going to spend. It's funny, most times when people come into our office, they fill out a, a monthly budget and they say, this is where my spending is. And we go through that and let's say it comes up at $12,000. However, what I can do is I can then go to your practice and I can determine how much money actually hits your personal checking account. And in most cases, that number is higher than that based on your net salary, based on your net building rental income, any other income you might have, we can know exactly what hits your personal checkbook. You say it's 12, but 14 actually hit your checkbook. So where's the extra 2000 going? If it didn't go to savings personally, then we know it probably got spent somewhere and that spending probably was in some type of discretionary um, spending. So that's why it's important to somehow have some type of tracking mechanism um, for this so that we can determine um, at least where the money is going on a global scale. So that then determines our, our 50%. And then we move into what are our pension planning opportunities. And I wanna run through um, just a couple part, just a couple questions here. So as a self-employed individual, the number one best place for you to save, and many people have them in place today, um, but it's some type of profit sharing or 401k plan at your office. This is where you can make up almost all 20% of your, of your earnings. You can save it with a pre-tax deduction, meaning you save taxes or the government pays for you to save money. And this is an important topic to note because there's a lot of people out there that don't recommend these type of plans because they think that the staff costs are too high or the administration costs are too high in running these type of plans. So an action item that I want each of you to take is I want you to fill out these questions, um, not while you're watching right now, but look up your information and find out exactly what you did. How much did I contribute to my office 401k plan last year? So I want you to write down what you contributed. That should be your salary deferrals, any type of safe harbor contribution or any type of profit sharing, how much went into the plan for you. The next line is the maximum amount you can contribute to the 401k. Well, the maximum amount you can contribute to the 401k plan for last year is $53,000 if you are under the age of, it's $53,000 if you're under the age of 50 and 59,000 if you're over the age of 50. So if you're under the age of 50, write 53,000 in that line. If you're over, write 59,000. Then subtract them, determine how much more you can contribute. If you're contributing the max, congratulations, you're doing um, a great job on your 401k plan. Then write down how much did my spouse contribute? Then write down how much should my spouse be contributing. Your spouse should be contributing at least $18,000 to the 401k plan. And that would be the salary deferral to the 401k. They might be able to get a small profit sharing contribution, but primarily it's their salary deferrals. How much more your spouse could contribute? Then add up lines three and six. That's the increase to your contribution. And multiply that probably by 40% for your federal and state tax rate because you're probably in closer to the top tax brackets. Then you know how much you're missing on your tax return by not maximizing this type of plan. If it's 20,000, you're missing out on $6,000 and, and you're missing out on, on your tax savings on that. So this is an important topic to understand so you know exactly 
how your plan works, what you're getting into it, and what you're missing out on your tax savings. Dan, just quick question. Um, how does the math work uh, between a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k where you're paying the taxes up front and then everything else grow, grows tax-free? How does the it's math a great work? Question. A great question and one that is the answer really lies upon each individual's personal circumstance. The younger someone is and the lower the tax bracket they're in, typically the more I recommend the Roth 401k. The older someone is and the higher their tax bracket, the more I will recommend a traditional 401k. There's specific reasons behind that and how you're looking at it, um, but that's kind of the, the, the process. If you actually do calculations and you're in the exact same tax bracket in retirement that you are in uh, pre-retirement, then the answer is the same, whether you fund a Roth or, or a 401k. The younger you are, and if you're in a different tax bracket, sometimes the 401k, sometimes the Roth is better and sometimes the traditional is better depending on where you're at. Sometimes though, people will not save the max because they feel like they can't. If that's the case, I'll try to get them to fund the max. And even if they're gonna do the traditional, I wanna do the Roth, we'll do the traditional just to get the maximum savings in there. Right. So I wanna walk you kind of through an example on how you understand exactly how the government helps us, helps us pay for this type of opportunity. So let's look first at a 401k. So let's say that uh, your family can get a $71,000 contribution. That's the doctor getting 53,000 and the spouse getting 18,000 in salary deferrals. In order to get the 71,000, we've got to spend 12,000 and put that in for our staff contribution. We also have to spend about $3,000 in administration costs to run the plan to the uh, administration company or the attorneys that are, are doing the work to determine how much everyone can put into the plan. So the plan actually costs us $86,000. Now your tax rate at 40%, you might say, well, wait a second, I thought he said we want taxes at 30% back in our, in our circle. Well, that's correct. We do want your overall taxes there's a difference between your effective tax bracket and your marginal tax bracket. Okay. No matter who you are and how much money you make, you get the benefit of each marginal tax bracket. As you add all those up together, it becomes your effective tax bracket. So if I make a million dollars, I still a portion of my income is taxed at zero, 10, 25, 30, working up to that 40% bracket. If I am if I'm making above $250,000 and not maximizing the 401k, I'm probably very close to that 40% bracket between federal and state taxes. So when you take income off, you're subtracting it, not at your effective rate, but at your highest marginal rate because you're lowering it get, to get to the lower brackets. So most clients will assume savings of probably close to 40%. So on $86,000, that saves there's saves us or knocks off my tax return $34,400. So I actually only had to spend $51,600. So take a look at how that works. I had $86,000. Um, it lowered my taxes by $34,000, so I didn't have to give that to the government. So I had to come up with the $52,000 to put in $71,000 for myself and $12,000 for my staff. That's obviously a very win-win situation. I got 71,000 of benefit and it cost me 12,000 or 5,000 and cost me 12,000 and 3,000 for running the plan. 15,000 between both costs. 
Well, the government did 34,000 of that. So I'm to the good, 34,000 less $15,000. I'm to the good by a significant amount, $19,000, that lowered my $71,000 funding. If you flip to the other side, okay, I'm in the top income tax bracket. I take home my $86,000, I pay 40%, and I have 51,600 left over. So now I got 51,600, the government got 34 for it. So in the 401k example, I got to save $71,000. If I brought the money home and paid taxes, I only got to save $51,600. That is a 37% higher benefit with the 401k plan. So in most cases, we will see a 25 to 30% higher benefit by utilizing the 401k than not utilizing the 401k. That's the equivalent of a stock market return. Right. Every single year, much higher than the stock market, who wouldn't give a 25 to 35% return? Because now I can take my 71,000 or my 51,000 and I can invest them exactly the same. And that's what the next slide is gonna show us is, okay, what do I do now that I'm getting ready to invest in? Well, now I already know I've got 37% more going in. It's gonna be real hard for the 51,000 to catch up to the 71. So let's look at how that works. Under the 401k option, I have my 71,000. Assume I can get an 8% long-term return. I don't have any taxes on that because it's inside my tax deferred environment. It's growing at 8%. After 10 years, I'm at 1.1. 20 years, I'm at 3.5, and at 25 years, I'm at $5.6 million. During retirement, we will try to limit someone to make their money last for 25 or 30 years to somewhere around a 5% withdrawal out of their portfolio. So in this example, at 5.6 million, I've got a 5% yield, so I pulled $280,000 out. I'm never gonna pull out more than I need because I'm gonna keep the other money growing tax deferred where I don't have to pay interest, capital gains and dividends on that money every year. Assuming I'm in a very high flat tax rate at retirement of 30%, just to give the benefit of doubt on this calculation, I have $196,000 after tax to spend at retirement. Under the second scenario, I take my 51,600, I earn 8% of my money, but however, every year I've got to pay interest, dividends, and capital gains on that money. So let's assume that most of it is capital gains. So it's at only a 25% tax rate between federal and state. So my earnings after tax are 6%. Now someone might say, well, I'm not pulling the money out of my personal environment to pay the taxes. So it's actually still growing at 8%. Yes, but you're still paying the taxes out of your personal cash flow, which could be added to your savings if you were, um, using that to, to not pay the taxes out of your personal cash flow. So at 6% return, you can see after 25 years, I'm at $3 million. So $3 million at 5% yields me 150,000. My money's already in the tax, in the tax free in, or in the taxable environment. So I'm probably gonna have to pay capital gains tax on most of that money as I pull it out to live off of, because I'm gonna be living off of the yield, the interest, the dividends and capital gains not touching the principal. That means even if I'm in a lower tax bracket of 20%, I gotta pay some taxes, I have $120,000. So I have 196,000 versus $120,000 to live off of. That's a significant amount of difference in the amount of money that you have to live off of after taxes. That's 63% more money to live on in retirement by utilizing the 401k option. 
If Big you difference. go back and look at this, $71,000 into the 401k plan, if you divide 71,000 by 20%, that's 355,000. So if you go back and look at your, um, your financial statement, 355,000 at a 40% net, that's a practice that's doing about 900,000 for a solo practitioner office. So a solo practitioner office that does 900,000 and that's 40% would make about 360,000. They should be maximizing the $71,000. If you're doing more than that and not doing more than maximizing your 401k plan, you are saving much less than 20% of your income. And you're probably spending more than 50%, which means you're not on track to keep your financial plan in place for the long term. Got it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Steve. Did you have a no, question? No, it's good. You're, it, okay. it all makes sense. So the last thing that that uh, I like to kind of leave people with is kind of some type of action item that that they can have, and uh, the slide is is just kind of a joke. Is you know keep calm and make a plan, and you go back to writing down your goals. I know if you've ever used a consultant, if you're using, if you're using tops, one of the things they make you do is write down your goals. Why is it that we never really write down or plan for our financial goals, whether they're short-term, whether they're long-term, whether they're mid-term goals, those goals need to be written down and they need to re be rehearsed. They need to be looked at and they need to be looked at every single year to know how they're changing. The clients that write those down and look at them and rehash them every year are clients that actually, um, will be reaching their goals. Those that don't do not reach those goals. So one of the things that I like to talk to, to people about is an easy way to look at that is just write down what your current age is, write down what your target retirement is and how many years you have left to get to your target retirement age. Then simply write down how much have I saved and how much is my goal that I need. Now you know what we refer to as your retirement gap. Well, in re looking at your retirement gap, how are you gonna fill that retirement gap? Well, how much am I saving every year? Am I saving $71,000? Well, multiply that by how many years you have left to retirement. How much do I think I can sell my practice and my building for? Now just subtract those two and you know how much is left that has to come from investment return. That's a good way to back into the risk that you need to assume out of your investment return or change how long your, your time frame is, or change how much you're going to save. Without knowing how your gap is going to be filled between your savings, the sell of your business and your building, and your investment return, a lot of times we'll take too much risk on, on our investments, we won't be saving enough, or we may make one of the biggest mistakes and not continue to grow our practice and transition it to someone over time to increase our ability to take equity out of our business. So those three, those are the only three ways we fill up our gap. How much am I saving? What am I gonna sell my practice and building for? And what's my investment return? So figure out what your gap is. So your action item is find out what your gap is. Understand how you're going to get there. Um, and with that, you'll set up your goals and you'll make a very good plan to get to where you want, where you want to be financially. And the last screen, I've just got information about Came Waters. Um, if you liked anything that you heard or have further questions, um, we are more than happy to take a review of your tax returns, um, look at your pension plan administration to see if you're maximizing it and taking advantage of your earnings potential. 
and talk with you on the phone to show you how we can potentially help you or save you money all free of charge. Um, and that all comes as a, as a member of Crown Council who is a great supporter of, of, of Kane Waters and Associates. So I just want to thank Steve for having me today. Thank all of you for listening. And uh, I hope to see you in the Kane Waters offices with us helping you help achieve your financial goals. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. A um, couple of things just to uh, just to recap. So you, I mean, you've done a very, you, you accomplished the objective that I gave you so for, uh, you know, the savings plan, the spending plan, and then the earnings plan on your savings. So very concise, very uh, straightforward, basic principles that anybody can use. So thank you for, for sharing those. As a Crown Council resource partner, which Kane Waters is, uh, and if I can reiterate, so uh, any Crown Council member can call you or call Kane Waters uh, and the information's uh, there on the screen. And for those that are listening, uh, you can just go to Kane Waters, C-A-I-N-W-A-T-T-E-R-S dot com um, for all this contact information. But anybody can call you and then you'll give them uh, you will do a free evaluation of any one of those things that you've talked about, pension plan, tax returns, et cetera, et cetera, just as a, a separate set of eyes on what they're doing at no cost. Is that right? That's correct. That is absolutely correct. And we, we would love to take a look at tax returns, financial statements, so that we can you know, highlight areas that um, they might have opportunities with. Gotcha. So, you know, our hope in this, uh, in, in Dan, and you're sharing this, is one of the requirements that we have for qualified membership in the Crown Council is that, as you have mentioned, there is a written plan that is being followed on a yearly basis that will lead to economic freedom. And so that's, that's one of the eight points of qualified membership is that that plan is in place. And you've laid out some great basic fundamentals of what needs to be part of that plan. So thank you for sharing today. Uh, I've always said that, uh, you know, it's one thing to be able to share and teach. It's another uh, to be able to share it in a way that people can understand it and use it. And you have taken what is a, can be a pretty complicated topic and made it very, very simple for everybody. So I hope that based on that, that uh, everyone listening will take action and either get the plan or upgrade their plan and make it that much better for your having shared with us today. Dan, thank you for being thank our- Thank you very our much, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity.